It'll be in John 6. You can turn there if you want. It is Christmas time, and uh, gift giving's a big deal. Uh, Thanksgiving really has become just the gateway to the Christmas season and the shopping season. Um, when you think of gifts this Christmas, one of the things I would encourage you to think about is this. Maybe you've never thought about it this way before. It said, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you are in fact a Christmas present from God the Father to God the Son. Let me say that again. It says, if the Father wrapped you up, tied the string, put the bow on top, and gave you to his Son. Now, this isn't something I'm making up. This is in our text in John 6. And let me say a couple things before we get into this text this morning. John is a gospel that tells us why it was written. It's written so that you may believe in the Son of God and believing you may have life in his name, John 20. However, it is also the most offensive of the Gospels in this sense. More than any of the other Gospels, it presents a term, I'll use some terms here this morning in introducing this that I won't throughout the text because they're not there, but election, Sovereignty, predestination, whatever you want to say, you'll find it more prevalent in the Gospel of John than any other Gospel. So the Gospel that's written to tell us the information we need to know to believe in Jesus, you'll also find a situation after situation in which Jesus makes no apologies that you're not my sheep. Uh, the passage this morning, John 6, John 8, John 10, uh, it's repeated. And so I want to say that on the front end. I also want to say this. Anytime you talk about what's called the sovereignty of God in who becomes saved and who doesn't, you're treading on thin ice. Uh, but the truth is, if you're going to teach through the scriptures, you've got to do it honestly. And so that's what I'll attempt to do this morning in this passage in John 6. And then let me say something else. This tends to be one of those highly emotional issues, and, and we're going to deal with it this morning because Jesus does here in John's in this chapter in John. Um, this tends to be so emotional, though. Most of us don't make up our mind on things like this in a morning or one reading. Or we think about these things. We mull them over in our mind before we feel that we're convinced that the Scripture teaches one thing or another. And so let me just encourage you with this. Read the text this morning. We'll talk through some of these issues together. And if the dust doesn't settle for you, that's fine and that's normal. Go home and you can read it again today or tomorrow or next week. And you can read it next year. And If you go through all your days and say, well, Lord, I'm just not sure what you mean by this, that's fine too. That's fine too. You can make a study of this later. And, you know, by the way, this is one of those issues. The text today brings up an issue that has been a hot spot for theologians uh, for centuries. And we're not going to settle anything this morning, but we'll do our best to get through the text and see what it says and what it means. <clears throat> if you remember in John 6, we're following the crowd that followed Jesus. You remember first they saw miracles of healing, then he fed them miraculously, and so they followed him around the north end of the Sea of Galilee there to Capernaum from Bethsaida. And they're looking for that next happy meal. And Jesus tells them, you know, hey guys, don't work so hard for bread that perishes, but work for the bread that endures to eternal life. And then they say, well, you know, what work? And he says, this is God's work for you. Believe on the one he has sent. We're going to pick up there at verse 36 this morning. 
He says, but I said to you, you have seen me, but you don't believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Go back to the beginning there, this hungry crowd that's following Jesus, verse 36 and 37. He says, you've seen me, so far so good, but you don't believe in me. There's a sense in which he's saying, hey, not to worry, not to worry, because even though, remember, these are thousands of people. And in general, the thousands don't believe. And of course, if you know the rest of John 6, most of them will turn and walk away. In fact, many of his disciples, that is not just the crowd that saw the miracles and ate, but many others who've been following him for some time, many, if not most of his disciples, will leave him at the end of this chapter also because of these claims he's making here. And in fact, the claims that he's going to even uh, aggravate, as it were, here as John 6 goes on. Uh, But Jesus has no anxiety about the rejection of the crowds here. And if we ask why, it's because of this phrase, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. This is why I said earlier, this theme about if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's because God the Father gave you to him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. The fact that the Father gives guarantees Jesus knows that some will come and believe. They won't just see, but they'll see him and they'll believe. So Jesus speaking to this large crowd, thousands of people have followed him, and he knows, I assume by the Holy Spirit, he knows that most do not believe in him. And he states it, but there's no aggravation, there's no anxiety or fearfulness, as if his mission is failing. To the fact that he's being rejected by most, he says, and he says to the people who are rejecting him, you know it's okay, because I know this. I know that every single person that the Father gives to me, they'll come. You've seen me and you don't believe, and in a sense he's saying that's okay, because I know the ones the Father gives will come. Look at verses 38 through 40. He says, I'm down here from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is his will. Of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. I myself will raise him up on the last day. That is the will of the Father. Jesus saying, I'm not here 
just doing the things I want. I'm here accomplishing the will of my Father, and that means all that he's given me, I won't lose any. And everyone who beholds the Son and believes will have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. So that is the mission of Jesus on earth. All that the Father's given me, I will lose nothing. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes will have eternal life. Now, the crowd Jesus is addressing, they've seen him. They behold him, but they don't believe. Jesus says those that the Father gives him, described there in verse 40, they both see him or they behold him, and they believe. So if we say, how do we know the ones the Father gave to Jesus? It's this simple. They're the ones who believe. The believing ones are the gift. They're the Christmas present, as it were, to the Son, the ones who see and believe. Now listen to the response in verse 41. The Jews are grumbling about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down out of heaven. And they say, hey, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? We know his father and mother. How does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Now it's interesting, remember this. These guys are following Jesus because they've seen miracles. And not one, but a few at least. Remember that they started following because they saw miracles of healing. They've miraculously been fed, and they're following him with the hope of more miracles and maybe another meal. So it's not as if they're saying when they follow him, this is just the son of Joseph. They're following the guy who's working wonders, attesting miracles, signs from heaven. But when Jesus says, and now I'm telling you this, you must believe in me, now they say, well, who do you think you are? You're just Joseph's son. We know who you are. What do you mean you came down from heaven? They kind of want it both ways. We're going to follow you, Jesus, because you're doing the miracles, things no one else can do. But on the other hand, when you say, believe in me, then we're saying, who do you think you are anyway? And the grumbling, do you remember when we looked at this before with the manna? And they say, hey, we'll take some more bread, Jesus. You remember what the Jews in the wilderness said to the manna? When God fed them in the Exodus, they grumbled. And here again, Jesus, when he says, I'm the bread of life, I've come down out of heaven, what do they do? They grumble. And this is what unbelief always does. We just complain, we bicker, and we grumble. Keep going at verse 43 and 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up in the last day. Let me emphasize this again. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Uh, A couple questions here. What in the world does this mean? No one can come. Does this mean that the Father forbids people from coming to the Son? And I would say that this is not what this teaches. When he says no one can come, he's not saying God forbids anyone from coming. Uh, We could say it another way, uh, perhaps... Uh, no one would come. No one would come. And we'll talk about this here towards the end of the message this morning. But it does not mean that God forbids any from coming. That's not what Jesus uh, says. And we'll quote Revelation later to, to show that. It also, though, it must mean this. Anyone who does come to Jesus has been drawn by the Father. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
So anyone who does come, we can say the Father has drawn them. Uh, let me spend a little time here, too, talking about this term draws him, draws him. If we think, if we see this in our mind's eye as uh, God the Father dropping breadcrumbs along the trail, so to speak, and so he innocently leads us along and then we believe, that's not what this text says. It's not what the Greek says. When he says the Father draws him, synonyms, English synonyms for this would be tugs, drags, or compels. I'm serious. These would be the synonyms. This isn't, this isn't uh, crumbs on the trail, and it's not a spoken invitation to someone with the hope that they will respond. That's not what the Greek text means when it says the Father draws him. This is like drawing water from the well. If I draw water from the well, I dump a bucket down and I pull the water up. And that's the same thought here. It's not an invitation that I say yes or no to. This means to be compelled, to be compelled. Let me give you an illustration. All illustrations in the end are short, but let me give you mine here. Let's say I live in the southwest where the Mustang herds still roam wild, and I'm a rancher. And I've decided that I'm going to go out to that wild herd of Mustangs, and I'm going to round some up and bring them to my ranch. And I'm going to do that because I know that the winters are hard on the horses, and that they have no veterinary shots and all that good stuff. So I'm going to round, round them up and bring them to my corral and give them a better life than they had before. Of course, there's a problem. Wild horses don't want to be domesticated. And they don't want to come to my ranch and my corral. And they don't want to get the shots from the vet. They don't know that it's really better at my house than on the wild. Because that's their nature. They're wild horses. They don't want to be tamed. But I get my fellow cowboys and I go out on my horses... And we find the herd, and we circle them, and we start driving them towards the ranch. Are you with me? We're driving the wild horses. Now, some of them, of course, some of them break ranks, and they flee back out into the wild, right? <clears throat> but some of them, as we whoop and holler and we drive our horses back and forth, right? Some of them we drive back to the ranch, and the corral gate closes behind them as we get them in right where we wanted them to go. Now, let me ask you a question. Are those wild Mustang horses in my corral because I compelled them there? Absolutely. They wouldn't have been there if I didn't. They're wild horses. They wouldn't come in. But I surrounded them and I drove them. And I compelled them into my corral onto my ranch. Yes, I compelled them. They're there because I got them there. What about this? Did they also run there of their own volition? Well, in a sense, yes, they did. You see, the whole time they were running away from me, they were running to exactly the place I wanted them, right? They're trying to escape the wild rancher and his wild ranch partners, right? Hooping and hollering, driving them in. But every step they take with their own mind, their own will, and their own muscles, they're actually accomplishing my purpose. Because I'm compelling them, even though they don't know it, I'm compelling them to get where I want them. My ranch and my corral. So, did they end up in my corral because I drove them and compelled them? Yes, they did. 
Did I use their minds, their will, their muscles to get them where I wanted them to go? Yes, absolutely. Let me read you a couple phrases out of a poem. By the way, um, some people find this offensive. If you tell a person that, uh, uh, if I tell that horse, you know, once he's domesticated in my corral and he gets his good food and his sugar, you know what he says to himself? Well, I was one smart horse to follow my way into this corral, you know? Uh, And sometimes we find this thought offensive that God draws us, that he's the one that compels us for a couple of reasons. But that's what Jesus is saying here. Let me read uh, the introduction to a poem called The Hound of Heaven that goes exactly along with this thought. This is by uh, Francis Thompson. I fled him, and him is God. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. And in the midst of tears I hid from him. And under running laughter, up visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated. Adown titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. But with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat. And a voice beat, more instant than the feet, all things betray thee who betrayest me. And I won't finish the rest, but of course the hound of heaven is God himself chasing the person down. And they look back and they say, man, I fled like the horses. I was running away from you the opposite direction. And of course in the end, only to end up exactly where you wanted me. The hound of heaven. I would... I believe Jesus is teaching something along this line here in John 6 when he says, if you've come to the Father, it's because the, if you've come to the Son, it's because the Father has drawn you. That is, with cords of kindness, he has drawn you. Or like the rancher with the horses, he's the one who's come in not to do harm to your will, as it were, but to bless you and to save you. John closes this passage at verse 47 by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. He who believes has eternal life. Let me mention four things related to this passage. The first is this. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, rejoice, be glad, give thanks. Because of this, listen to this. This is what's true of everyone who has trusted Christ, who has believed in him from verse 47. Remember Jesus said his mission is to come down and do the Father's will. And what's the Father's will? It's that all who see him and believe will have eternal life. So, if you've trusted Christ, listen to this. This is what's true of you. Jesus says, verse 37, The one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Anyone who comes to Christ finds open arms, welcoming arms. He says, I will never cast you out. Verse 39, all that he, the Father, has given me, I will lose nothing, but I will raise it, that's you and me, up on the last day. Jesus says to those who believe in him, you won't be lost and he'll raise you up on the last day. Verse 41, 
that you and I will have eternal life. And he says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. And verse 44, and I will raise him up on the last day. There's a theme here, isn't it? Those who come to Christ, who have believed, who have been compelled by the Father, they're safe. Jesus says he won't lose you. You're safe in his hands. We'll talk about this later in John 10, but the great illustration in John 10. Jesus says you're in his hand. His hand is in the Father's hand. You're safe. That's the first thing. If you're someone who is not yet trusted in Christ, you know, the thing that keeps anyone out of heaven is uh, unbelief. Unbelief. Jesus invites all who see him to simply believe. And let me say it this way. The only sin that keeps a person out of heaven is the refusal to trust or to believe in Christ. Right? Every sin can be forgiven. Jesus says there's one exception. He talks about the sin against the Holy Spirit. But I assume that means the rejection of Christ. The Holy Spirit is here to bear testimony to who Jesus is. That's what he says in the Upper Room Discourse. You know, anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can come to Christ and believe. That's what we're talking about. No work, Jesus has said earlier, the work of God is to believe. It's to trust. It's to exercise faith in Christ. Uh, The second thing I want to say is this. It's about, uh, terms get bandied about a little bit, but about free will. Um, If Jesus says those who come to him have been given him by the Father, it sounds as if God does violence to our will. People say, <coughs> excuse me, things like, what about free will? Um, the truth is, biblically, uh, none of us have what we can call in any absolute sense a free will. There's been no free will on earth since Adam and Eve sinned. Remember that once Adam and Eve sin, they are ruled over by sin itself. Do you remember in Romans? Paul says, You're a slave to the one you obey. And sinners are slaves to sin. There's been no truly free moral agent since Adam and Eve. You remember they were morally neutral. They could choose good or they could choose evil. But of course everyone born since them, what do we do from the womb? We sin. No one teaches us to do that. We are morally deficient. We're not neutral. So we sin because that is our nature. And I believe the saying is true that says something like this about our free moral will. We are free to do what we will or what we want. We are not generally free to do what we ought or what we should. Like the Mustangs on the open range, they think they've got the good life. They don't know that they're missing out on something and they're not going to volitionally come in. And that's generally what we're like. That's why we've got poems like The Hound of Heaven. H.A. Uh, Ironside said this uh, about this whole theme. He said that, uh, quoting Revelation twenty-two seventeen, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes, anyone who wants, take the water of life without cost. His view of, of of it was this. He says, it's like from earth's perspective, I look up at heaven and there's a doorway and it quotes Revelation 22, 17, let all who will come and drink from the water of life freely. And I see that door and I go through that door. I believe in Christ. And then I get onto the other side and I look back at the doorway from heaven's side 
And I read this. Chosen in him before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. Or John 6, compelled by the Father, driven through, as it were, the gates of heaven, by the hound of heaven, so to speak. Uh, There are no truly free moral agents, and our version of free moral agents means sinners sin, generally. The third thing is this. uh, Notice Jesus' response to those who don't believe in him. And I say this for application as you think about sharing with other people. You know, Peter talks about having... uh, Uh, Be prepared to make a defense to any who ask for the hope that is in you. That is, if you share the gospel with someone else and they say something, well, why should I believe or what is this about Christ or whatever? Peter says we should have some kind of preparation that we're able to tell others why we have a hope in Christ. And that means some information, generally. We should be able to tell others who Christ is and what he's done. And, And at least on some basic lines, why his claims are viable, why they're appropriate. We should be able to do this. However, consider the crowd here, what they've seen, what they've done, and their response. They've seen the miracles. They've heard Jesus' words. They've eaten the bread from heaven, and they don't believe. And he's not surprised. And he's not anxious. And by the way, he doesn't even jump through any hoops trying to convince them. When you share the gospel with others, if someone doesn't believe, I'm not saying feel any glee. Paul says in Romans that he has unceasing grief in his heart for his fellow Jews because he wants to see them saved. But it's not as if Jesus is shaken. And when you and I share the gospel with others and they don't believe, this should not rattle our cage. It shouldn't shake us up. Because with Jesus here in John 6, the truth is still this. All that the Father gives Jesus will come. The ones who come are drawn by the Father. And so when I share the gospel, I can do so with this confidence. Lord, I am like the farmer in Luke's gospel who takes the seed and I throw it out there. And you know what? I know this. I know that a lot of the seed that is sharing the message of Christ with others, a lot of it's not going to go anywhere. But I don't know which person is the good soil and which is the hard soil. I don't know that. I can't look at a person and discern that. I'm called, we're called as Christians to share the gospel far and wide, near at home and and distant. And we don't know who's going to come. That's not up to us. They will come. So when we share the gospel, and if we can't answer everyone's questions just right, don't worry about it. If you genuinely sense that someone wants some information, do your best to get it for them. But people don't refuse Christ based on evolution or science or anyone. There's all kinds of reasons people will tell you they're not Christians, all of which are invalid. Christ is the issue. Um, Sometimes it's said uh, that if I believe that Uh, in the term called election, and I do because I believe the Bible teaches it. If I believe in election, I have no motivation to share the gospel. This is a canard. It is a lie, frankly, and it's not good theology either. Uh, For what it's worth, most of the great missionaries of the 1800s believed in election. 
It didn't slow them down in sharing the gospel around the world. It informed their decisions. It motivated them. In fact, Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Listen to this. There was no greater evangelist than Paul, and there was no one who felt more towards others in his desire to see them come to Christ than Paul. Listen to what he says, though, in 2 Timothy 2.10. He says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. The Greek is for the elect, the, the ecclesia, those who have been chosen out by God, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Paul's the one who penned most of the passages in the New Testament about election. And Paul says, Paul who's confident that all that the Father gives to the Son will come. Paul says, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. This is the guy who boasts about imprisonment, beatings, rejection, etc. He's the ever-ready bunny who just keeps going anyway, one place to another to share the gospel. This was the guy who taught election, and it motivated him because he knew not only had God elected people or ends, we could say, he'd also chosen means. And Paul understood that God had chosen him. In fact, he says this elsewhere, chosen him out from among the Jews to be his key representative to the Gentiles. And so Paul felt commissioned and he felt responsible. And he knew he would give an account before God Almighty for whether or not he had discharged his responsibility to share the gospel far and wide. So if you believe in election, and I believe there's all the biblical reason to do so, this, is, this does not end your motivation for sharing the gospel. I think what it does is refines and sharpens it. And then the last thing is this. When you talk about spiritual issues to others, remember this. In the end, there's only one issue, and it's Christ. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's not everything else that we love to talk about. It's not creationism or evolution. It's not young earth or old earth. It's not a hundred other things. It's the person and the work of Christ himself. So if you talk to someone about spiritual things, the one thing that you should know they heard from you is Jesus Christ. The will, Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father. He's come down to earth to die for your sins and mine so that all who believe may have eternal life. And he says to those, anyone who comes to me, I'll never turn you away. I'll never reject you. I'll never cast you out. Let me close with another poem. I'm, I'll read this one. It's a sonnet by John Donne or John Dunn. It's called Batter My Heart. And this, uh, this is written about the time the King James Bible was, so you'll have to think through the syntax and the words. Um, I couldn't think of a, a better a poem that expresses uh, my thoughts or my thankfulness too. Listen to what John Don says about this same issue or dynamic. He says, Batter my heart, three-person God, for you as yet but knock. Breathe, shine, and seek to mend that I may rise and stand. Or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like a usurped town to another do, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason your viceroy in me, 
should defend, but is captive and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed to your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. God, he says, if you'll imprison me, I'll be free. And if you'll ravish me, I'll be pure. But even though I've got reason within me and I've got my will, they don't serve me the way they should. And unless you break into my city, I'm afraid that I won't come. So Lord, you do it for me. You break in. You imprison me. You ravish me. And I'll be thankful. Let's pray. Lord, I know that all things serve your purpose. Father, further, I know that you embody, you have within your own character only goodness, that not even a hint, not even a shadow of darkness lies within your person. Lord, I know that you will be glorified both through evil and through good. Father, thanks that you didn't just take it upon yourself to send your Son to the earth to die for our sins and to return to heaven, but that you compelled, that you've drawn, that you've driven and tugged and pulled us into yourself and into your family and into your home. Father, if we struggle with this passage or with other passages like it, help us just to get before you and to pray through these things. Help our thoughts to be your thoughts. And Lord, that is the bottom line. We really do want to be informed by your words of truth. We want to set, be set free, as Jesus says in John 8, by your words of truth. Father, if we've come to know you, help us to give you thanks every day as those of whom Jesus said, you'll not lose us. You'll not turn us away. You'll raise us up on the last day. Lord, help us to share with others the hope we have in Christ. And Lord, if we're here today and have not yet come to know or to trust you, Help us simply to call out with the jailer in Acts 16, What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, make believing hearts today. Father, we worship you and we adore you. In Jesus' name, amen.